you to turn your Bibles or Bible apps to the Gospel according to Matthew, the 16th chapter beginning in the 13th verse. Let us receive together the Word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends, and welcome to those of you who might just be joining us. You can find the links for fully engaging in our service in our Facebook and YouTube comments or on the website at foundryumc.org. And if you're in need of ASL interpretation, you can find that info on foundryumc.org ASL. Let's pray. God, for your wisdom and revelation and hope, we pray now. Amen. In our text from Matthew this morning and in the surrounding text, there is this symphonic interplay of Christ's divinity and humanity that prepares us for this critical question, who do you say that I am? And honestly, it could seem like an invitation to pick one. Is what we've heard about you true? Are you the child of God? Or are you the human that was given life and birthed by Mary, a perpetual includer, a hope giver, a challenger, I'll admit a little angry for my taste sometimes, a guide for the way of peace and liberation, divinity or humanity. How should we identify you here, Jesus? And in the text, as an answer to this question, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Messiah perhaps unaware that he is unlocking a significant piece of the gospel story. And Jesus's response is, yes, I am that. And oh, by the way, also, I want you, Peter, to be the foundation for the space the Messiah inhabits in the world. Someone will need the keys to open the doors at all hours of the night for my people 
to fire up the ovens in the kitchen for bread baking to collect alms and distribute them. Be careful with these keys, though, Peter, because they also lock doors and can bar them shut and can be used for defensive posturing at best and ethnic cleansing at worst. These keys also lock chains, Peter, and whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. This word for bound is used in every other place by the author of Matthew as a synonym for what happens just before death. Bind it and then we will burn it. Bind him and then throw him into the darkness. Bind him and deliver him to Pilate. And in many ways, it's worse than the death it foreshadows. It's an agent of humiliation, a tool of torture, a surefire way to exclude or at the very least place out of sight people from the family. It's a big job, Peter. Just as we don't get Jesus's divinity without Jesus's humanity, we also don't get to claim a divine promise of messianic fruition and salvation as ours without being handed the keys to the whole dang thing. Peter's ability to move forward in this calling as the rock and foundation for the ecclesia, the church, is shaped by his understanding of who Jesus is. A gift, the author says, given to Peter from heaven. This question for the disciples is one that we should be reckoning with every day. Who will we say Jesus is? The struggle of recognizing who Jesus is in the world is an ongoing, ever-present, deeply theological question which considers the collision of Jesus's divinity and Jesus's humanity, and it directly affects our relationship to the ecclesia, to divine work, and to the kingdom origin of the Messiah. I have this theory that claiming Jesus's divinity and salvific power without the accountability of the work of figuring out what that actually means is the equivalent of holding up a divine shelf to ensure that the kingdom doesn't crash down and leak all over the systems and institutions that we've crafted around our apologetics and often poorly examined portraits of Jesus and what we're supposed to do or perhaps more prevalently not do about it. Institutions and systems that are built with gatekeepers and their protection at all costs in mind. But the incarnation cuts out the middle person on purpose If it was up to Peter to conjure the messianic idea or to have it told to him through someone else, this text might have gone in a different direction. But because of impediment-free revelation, it's an opportunity to lean into what is to come 
And from that moment, the author says that Jesus began to tell the disciples about the great suffering that lay ahead, which may not feel like good news. But this leak from heaven, though, is a consequential next step in the harrowing journey to Golgotha and in and the life that lies beyond it. And I want to challenge us to not continue to put all of our effort into holding up the divine shelf, especially if it's just for the sake of continuing a fruitless dichotomy to appeal to our binary mindsets or our separatist ideals. If we're just doing it because we need here and there, we need us and them, we need now and later, we might be calling the Messiah by the wrong name or giving the Messiah the wrong title or following the wrong Messiah on Twitter. Here's what I want us to hear. It is an enterprise to keep the kingdom of heaven where it is, to prevent a more close encounter, to keep Jesus's messianic revelation up on the divine shelf as a separate characteristic and to claim it without accountability to it, to use it as proof rhetoric for our own Christological convictions that tell us that we are the home team. And that we are fine to keep on pretending that somehow not interacting with the world is what will save us and that there will be hell to pay for the ones who dare to try. People make millions of dollars and, quote, save millions of souls by holding up the divine shelf and keeping it as this distant ideal. It can be sold because it promises that full investments in capitalist theocracies are rewarded with impunity. It promises that full investments in capitalist theocracies are rewarded with impunity. And it is controlled by those in power who sit on thrones of supremacy and bathe under faucets of privilege, who collect rugs to sweep things under and co-sign unwritten rules, and who benefit most from its right-side-up, uninterrogated narrative that holiness or salvation was bought by the shedding blood of a brown-skinned immigrant in chains with no realization that the whip is an extension of their very own hand. Keep it out. Keep Jesus's melanin messiahship and our role as bringers about of an upside down kingdom out. Hold up that shelf. Hire people to help us if we have to repackage it commodify it, keep ourselves clean and white and unaccountable. Let the Messiah sort it out. We'll wait. But the divine shelf must fall 
It has to clang in its reentry and crash our parties of complacency. Those words, you are the Messiah, need to make an absolute mess of this place because divine work doesn't solely exist in ethereality. Divine work happens when the disciples are invited into a sea of doubt and offered a courageous, faithful, and yes, even a faltering witness when Jesus feels complacent Compelled to change his mind, to shift away from stereotypes and insults hurled at a woman desperately trying to save her child and to expand his definition of community, of who deserves a seat at the table, of who is welcome at the table. It happens when we are given permission for imperfection, when our impossible standards for ourselves and others are yanked out of the ground like the weeds that they are. It happens when we find a sacred, stolen moment or breathing space to connect cosmically to the fuel station of the universe when this is what it feels like to do the thing becomes an empowering mantra rather than a crippling cry. It's in whispers. It's in shouts of protest. It's in the wails of grief and the songs of hope and of Hosanna. And it happens when we invest in the streets and work for racial and economic justice and access to affordable housing and healthcare. It echoes in the halls of lawmakers as we organize against the crafting of evil and unjust policies. It reverberates in prisons as we visit and as we work to dismantle the system that unjustly locks folks away in the first place. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the bringer of divine promise and liberation and resurrection, the personification of the kingdom and also the messiahship is incomplete without the audacity of the flesh. Every instrument in the symphony must be played. We need to float through all the movements, the proclamation and the pain the rising and the reconciliation. May we get the music stuck in our head, commit its chords to our hearts. And even when we feel out of touch or like its meaning is muddied more than ever before, or when something is attempting to shout or tweet louder, may we find ourselves humming the melody of the Messiah, reminding us that what we know about the Messiah is true, that the Messiah is both the circle expander, the unbinder, the challenger, Mary's child, and the long-awaited fulfillment of a divine promise of liberation that we are also accountable to see carried out in the world. The Messiah isn't a reinforcer of separation or role calling on an us and them 
roster, you are the Messiah is an indicator that the way that we live and go about divine work matters, that the kingdom is leaking and it is our job to let it as painful as it might be for our privilege or assuredness so that we might continue the work of living in a community of open doors that breaks bread, collects and distributes alms, and is mindful of the intersections of oppression and the ways that the Big C Church has co-opted those stories, a community that acknowledges its pools of power and does the work to bring more folks to the table, a home for every person to feel safe to show up and not be loved in spite of who they are, but in the fullness of who they are. It's a big job and it takes waiting and working and suffering and resting and questioning and regrouping and refueling and carrying on in the long-term work because the Messiah is not a trend, it's a revolution. And the beauty is that we can't keep the kingdom out even if we try. We can't hold up a divine shelf or plug the messianic leak no matter how many gatekeepers we hire. No matter how much we insist on investing in our comfort or predictability or stiltedness. No matter our very real paralysis and visceral pain, grief, or illness. No matter our perceived failures or hesitation at the starting line. Our shoulders will begin to recognize the weight that we bear and the divine shelf will fall mightily. This quote from Meister Eckhart demonstrates why. Earth cannot escape heaven. Flee it by going up or flee it by going down. Heaven still invades the earth, energizes it, makes it sacred. God is at home here. It is we who have gone out for a walk. Let's pray. God, whatever we've unfaithfully bound, may you come and help us loosen it. May we be emboldened to sing loudly the symphony of who you are in the world and know that with each note, we have a responsibility to be agents of liberation for others and for ourselves. Give us the strength we need for this thing and for the next. Gather us up in community as witnesses and reminders of your holy work in us and in the world. Whisper to us each morning that you have not abandoned us. Breathe life and hope into the ecclesia, Lord, and we'll continue to unlock it. In the name of the Trinitarian God, we pray together. Amen. Amen.